Well, good morning, everyone. Um, this is the beginning of Holy Week today. Passion Week, perhaps you've called it that before. We call it Easter Experience. It's our effort to make a lot out of Sunday, Palm Sunday, all the way through Easter Sunday, Sunday to Sunday, and the various events that are in the middle of that as well. And so today we kick that off. Um, obviously the kids were part of that and the reading of the triumphal entry. And we're going to be taking you through some things this week with Good Friday Night of Worship and various things that will help focus your attention on the events that occurred this week. In fact, we'll be ending the service today with a reading from the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ's experience there. Uh, our desire is that you'll be thinking about the events that took place this week, and that's one of the ways we're going to do that is by leaving with that on our mind as well. So welcome today. Real glad you're here, and uh, I'm thankful that we can take these two weeks and focus on this very important week in Christ's life. In fact, this week, what is called Holy Week or Passion Week, perhaps more than any other week, it unifies the church and rallies us to our non-negotiables. Does that make sense? Maybe you're saying, I'm not sure what you mean. Uh, within the church and within church life, let's be frank, there, there are many weeks and many months and many things that we do and various things that happen that we can have different opinions on and different preferences. We can all be unified and kind of in the same boat, but there's different ways to express our faith. Even we've even seen some of those in James. Did you know that? There's passage in there about um, uh, adoption and helping the poor and how we react to certain people, and people do that in different ways, still obeying the Bible, Still unified, right? But just expressing that in different ways. But did you know that when it comes to this week, there's not like any gray room when it comes to the events of this week. We have to be all in, 100% unified, all hands on deck with what happened this week. This is the week in which the the non-negotiables of our faith are highlighted. These aren't opinion issues or preference matters. In fact, it's this week, listen very carefully, it's this week and the events in Christ's life that we remember that truly and essentially make us Christian. Did you know that? It's Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Those core, first important issues. So that's why I like Holy Week, Passion Week, because it really brings unity and focus to the church. Not that variety is bad, but unity in Passion Week is always uh, sensed stronger. It's because we're all kind of focusing on the non-negotiables. And so we're going to do that in these two weeks, not only in what we're attempting to have you focus on with the Good Friday Night of Worship and the Crucifixion and different things like that, but also in our messages here. So we're taking a break from James and we're going to look at a chapter in the Bible that really lays out what I would say is the incomparable gospel, the beautiful diamond of God's saving work on our behalf. I want to take this in two stages. I want to look today at the what of the gospel, what we preach and what you believe. Next week, I want to kind of focus on why we preach that, why we believe that, all right? This all takes place in one single chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Will you take your Bibles and locate that? 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's, in my estimation, the longest, most legal, and most logical chapter about the gospel. And Paul kind of unfolds for us what we believe and then why we believe it. So let's take two weeks and get our hands around that because this week, centuries ago, this very thing called the gospel played out for us, was lived out in the life of Christ. We're going to look this week, first of all, at the, at the 11 verses that open the chapter. This is where I think Paul, in a very succinct way, just kind of tells us and shows us what we believe and what he preaches. And then in a longer portion next week, 12 through 58, he talks about the why. But let's just take some time this morning and see more about what it is that we actually believe. What is the non-negotiable we rally around? What brings us to the, to the central place of unity as a church? What is it that we all have to say, I'm in for that? It's the gospel, and he explains that and, and delves into it pretty deeply here in these 11 verses. Now, with your Bibles open, I want you to notice, first of all, that these 11 verses are what I would call an equation of sorts, Okay? I'm not a mathematician. My wife will attest to that in a heartbeat. I'm more of a, of a word kind of grammar guy. But when I read these 11 verses, the, the way Paul moves from one thought to the next reminds me of an equation. And so we're going to see is kind of how he flows through this. We'll get to the end. We'll kind of see the sum of that equation. Um, we'll take a few questions, hopefully, if we have time. Uh, and then we're going to end this morning with, with an opportunity for us to respond to this this equation of sorts. Because a message this important, this central, a message this non-negotiable must be responded to. So that's what's in store for us this morning in these first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians of chapter 15. Now in this equation, he brackets it by two common words. I want you to see what they are. Before I read the text to you fully and kind of unpack it and and how to let the equation kind of unfold for us. I want you to notice, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, the idea of, of this idea that Paul is preaching the gospel. Do you see that? You circle the word preach in verse 1. And then he uses the word receive in verse 1. And then also the word believe in verse 2. If you'll just kind of tuck those words away and look over at the end of verse 11, you see a similar set of words, don't you? Verse 11, you see the word preach and the word believe. Now, I'll explain those as we go into that and read them in their context and the flow of the sentences. But just see that as the kind of brackets, the bookends, the the things that kind of uh, mark out this equation. He's talking about the things that he preached and the things that they believed. He says that at the beginning. He says it at the end. So what's he going to talk about? He's talking about the gospel. That's what he preached. That's what they believed. This is the what that he's going to discuss and unpack. Here's what he says about it. He says in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. The word gospel is just, uh, um, means good news. It's not a list of things to do. Hallelujah. Amen. It's, a, it's, a, it's news of what Christ has done. We'll get into that in a little bit. But Paul says he's reminding the brothers of the gospel that he preached, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, 
unless you believed in vain. Now, there's a lot of phrases there that, that could trip us even before we get into the rest of the verses. Let's pause for a moment and make sure we get this introductory set of sentences here. He says the gospel is what he preached to them, what he declared, proclaimed, and it's what they received. They took it in, and it says it's the, it's the means by which they are being saved. Maybe that strikes you as odd because you may think, well, I thought the gospel saved us. As in, if something happened in the past, this seems to be something that's happening. Well, just to clarify, the gospel's work in saving us is always in three tenses in the Bible, all right? Some of you may know this, but just to kind of review, there is a sense in which we are saved, past tense, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. There's a sense in which we are being saved by the gospel, 1 Corinthians 1.18 brings this up as well as this verse here. There's a sense in which the gospel is continuously keeping us, securing us. The work of Christ is always doing its work in our lives from the moment it started doing its work in our lives. And then there's a sense in which salvation is said to uh, happen later. Several verses say that we shall be saved from wrath to come. First uh, Thessalonians 5 mentions this as well as Romans 5, 9 and 10. So watch this. Now, here's, here's, I think, one of the delightful aspects of this. Salvation is not just a minimalistic understanding of something that, that God does for you once in your life, and then you move on. Sometimes that's how we think about it, though. Well, I did that when I was eight. Did you know that, that God sees salvation as encompassing all of your life? It's what he does in your past. At a given point of time, in belief, he saved you. He's doing that in your life now by securing you and keeping you. And did you know that at the end of time, whether it's the end of your life or the coming of Christ, when his wrath is to be revealed ultimately and consummationally and to all of his enemies, he will save you from that then as well. Aren't you glad that God's salvation is magnificently overarching all of your life. That's how big God is. And yet, a big God who could design a salvation that magnanimous is also the God who is so clearly, now watch this word, who is so clearly simple that he would say the, the access to that salvation is one word, believe. I love how God just expands both ends of the spectrum, don't you? He is incredibly deep, and in one sense, no doubt, way above us. And yet, He is so near us and, and close that He would say, simply believe. This is the salvation. This is the gospel being addressed here. The gospel that has saved us, is saving us, and will save us. This is what Paul was preaching. It's this gospel they received, this, they're standing in, and they're holding fast to, and then this phrase, unless you believed in vain. Now you might say, well, Todd, does that mean that if I hold it, then that makes my belief work? Not necessarily. There's nothing in our actions that make faith work, but there is something in our actions that show we have the right kind of faith to begin with. All right? So when he says that we might believe in vain, he's not saying that we actually truly believe and find out we we, we didn't have good faith after all, that, that our faith was kind of uh, you know, faulty or we got like a, a bad version of it. 
What he's saying is simply this. Without perseverance and endurance, you'll find that that's the wrong kind of faith to begin with. It's what Carlos said a few weeks ago when he preached on the faith that dooms you to hell. You may find that to be an odd title, but it's exactly right. There is a a wrong kind of faith, a, a mere mental assent to a set of like facts that you think will... Uh, that you acknowledge, but yet you don't really stand on, embrace, or receive, or hold on to? That kind of faith, you may think it's faith, but it's not. It's futile. It's vain. It's empty. And holding to that would not enable you to hold on to God. And so the, the, the sense of the verse is this. Those who've truly received the gospel are the ones who hold fast. That's the proof positive that our faith is truly genuine. And then what he does is, in verse 3, he begins to kind of describe this gospel. Now notice something. In verse 3, do you see the word for? I want you to circle that in your Bibles, because I want you to circle the word for. It's kind of an equation word, I think, that moves us through this this conversation. The word for in verse 3, and the word for in verse 9. Circle both of them. They'll help us move through Paul's thought process, kind of understanding the equation. Watch what he says. If it's the gospel that he preached to them, if it's the gospel that has saved them, if it's the gospel they're holding on to, our first question is then, what is the gospel? He defines that next. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. See, they're receiving what he's preaching. He's now going to tell them what he received. What is that? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, meaning there Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It's a euphemism for uh, dying. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now, let's just pause there and say this. If Paul is defining the gospel in these verses, how does he define it? In one word, Christ. So do you see the flow now? He says, guys, I'm going to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Oh, what's the gospel? It's that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. So all of, all of Paul's understanding of the gospel revolves around a person, Christ Jesus. Now maybe you're wondering, why does Paul use the name Christ here? I think it ties into the phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures. Do you see that in verse 3 as well as in verse 4? The word Christ is the, is the messianic title for Jesus. It describes the one who has long prophesied God's uh, intended and fulfilled person through whom all the redemptive promises would come. Everything that God promised was fulfilled in Jesus. It's whom God promised, and so that's called the Messiah, the Christ. Several times he's called Christ Jesus or Lord Jesus Christ. Here, Paul, just uses the title Christ to show these people that what God said and what God promised came true in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He's in accordance with the Old Testament Scriptures. This is the one to whom the gospel speaks. 
It's all about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Now, on a, on a different note here, let me just simply say this to you, that you, you find some various elements of Christ's life here. His death, His burial, His resurrection. And then, oddly in this passage, you find His appearances. In fact, did you know you find the word appeared more than the word died or the more than the word raised or more than the word buried? And yet, we don't really describe the gospel as the death, burial, resurrection, and appearance of Christ, do we? We don't say that usually. So why does Paul say it so much, and are we right in doing that? I think we are. Because the word appearance here, or the word appeared, mentioned several times, is simply Paul's way of of kind of bringing veracity, evidence, to the fact that the resurrection is true. Does that make sense? So I would connect the many times the word appeared used with the word resurrection. And then I would, in a, in a very simple way, I would say the gospel is Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And he is alive because there were so many appearances to so many people over a long period of time. In fact, we'll say more next week. But can we just at least, even on this Palm Sunday, agree with many scholars who've written this, and many of them are not biblical scholars, that's in believers, they're just simply... Uh, scholars of history, historians, they would say that the resurrection has more legal proof than, than most events in history in some ways because there is, there's not only appearances to more than one person, there's appearances to more than one person at one time and over a long period of time. This amount of evidence would stand up in any court of law. And Paul's bringing that to bear upon the gospel. He's saying the gospel is not some mythical, fantastical, made-up idea. It's about a singular person in history who's evidential, verifiable, true. Believing that matters. So Paul is saying, this is what we preached, and this is what you believe. We preach the gospel. The gospel is Christ. Now watch what he does next in verse 9. How did this affect Paul? Verse 9. For, here's your next transition word to kind of Get us through the equation. For I'm the least of the apostles. Now, he says that because he previously said he was uh, one that Christ appeared to in an untimely way, so to speak. In other words, he's kind of like the last of all. Speaking there of, of his call to apostleship, his conversion. He sees that as, as, as something different than the other guys. And so he says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. You can read the beginning part of Acts and hear Paul's testimony. He says, this this is who I was, but look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now that's interesting. Paul moves from the gospel to Christ to this phrase, the grace of God. He says, it is the grace of God that has made him what he is which is different than what he was. And he says this grace that that God showed him was not in vain. Interesting phrase there because he had just talked about vain belief, didn't he? In verse 1 and 2. He says this grace to him was not in vain. Why? Because Paul obviously did what verse 1 and 2 talk about. He held fast. In the middle of great persecution, many affliction, Paul held fast to the grace that God bestowed upon him. It caused him even, it says here, to work harder than any of them. 
though it was not I, but the grace of God. There's this phrase again. The grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. So, so Paul moves from the gospel, being what they preach and believe, to being personified in the life of Christ, to being illustrated as the grace of God. So here's Paul's equation. What is the gospel? Christ. And what is Christ? Christ is the grace of God to man. In fact, do you know earlier places, I think it's 2 Corinthians 4, Paul describes Christ as being um, the face by which we hold the glory and grace of God. If you want to know what the gospel looks like, Look at the cross. And there you see Christ giving his life for us. What does the verse say? Dying for our sins. That's God's gracious gift to us. You see, in one sense, there's no reason to make the gospel unnecessarily complicated. The gospel is Christ, and Christ is the evidential display of his grace that is the gospel now watch this that is what we believe in a very kind of equation form really put simply we believe in the gospel i.e. we believe in Christ i.e. we believe he is the grace of God to man alright by the way John echoed this in John chapter 1 he describes how the Word was with God, the Word was God. But then later he says that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So it's not unbiblical, even wrong to say that Jesus Christ is the personification of the grace of God. And that that news is good news, i.e. the gospel. Did you follow me in that math class all right? That's kind of the equation being brought here. Verses 1 through 11. Now, I want to delve a little deeper into some things about this gospel, i.e., about this Christ, i.e., about this grace of God. Two angles. Then we'll take some questions if you have some. I want to ask ourselves more intently, what is then the gospel, or i.e., what is then Christ, or what is this grace? And then secondly, what does it do? Because Paul does a really good job here not only of in a, in a kind of a simple, succinct way flowing us to this through this equation, but he also provides some very rich content for us that we need to understand. So what exactly is the gospel? If it's good news, why is it good news? What is that good news? He tells us. Let me give you two phrases. I want to kind of wrap these thoughts around. I've said these for years, and I, and I really believe this has helped me, and I think it'll help you. Paul says here in this text that the gospel is content sensitive, and contact sensitive. And this is why it's good news, by the way. But it's very important that we get this as far as what the gospel is. It is content sensitive. You could even use the word uh, content rich um, and contact sensitive. In other words, these things are necessary to the gospel. Okay, They're, They're mandated. They are part of it. First of all, it's the content. Look what he says. 
He agrees and he affirms and declares that the gospel is Christ. That's what is of first importance. That's what he received. But he says there's some things about Christ that matter, that he died for our sins. The substitutionary death of Christ, uh, we would even say in theological circles, the penal substitutionary death of Christ. He died in our place, but he died in our place as the punishment for our sins. We should have received that punishment. You should have been the one crucified. You should have paid the debt. You should have suffered the penalty for your sin. Church, let this weigh on you. That was your due. It was mine. That was, that's what was coming to us. But God stepped in on your behalf. Sent Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah... And in the fullness of time, ordained that Christ would die for your sins. That's a miracle. It's a gift, isn't it? That's important content when it comes to the gospel. It also says that he was buried and that he was raised. So, so here's, here's an issue we want to discuss. The gospel isn't just, oh, Jesus was a good man. Maybe he died a death and maybe we can pretend that it affects us in some way. No, the gospel is specific content about a specific person. It's this content that he was the long-awaited Messiah sent from God as God. He died to take our place, was buried, and by the power of God the Father was raised from the dead. This Content matters. If you delete any part of that content, watch this, you don't have the gospel, thus you're not saved. Say, really? Exactly. Because what do you say in this verse? It's this gospel by which you are being saved. So no wonder Paul would say to the Galatians, if anyone comes to you preaching a different gospel, now let's think about our equation, i.e., a different gospel, Christ, if they come to you saying, no, Christ did not come in the flesh, he did not die, he was not buried, he did not rise again, if those things are missing, deleted, you don't have the gospel. You don't have salvation. So Paul said, if that occurs within the believers in Galatia, he said this, let that person be accursed. Paul considered it an um, a terrible thing, an outrageous thing for a church to entertain anything other than the actual biblical content of the gospel, which is what? The truth about a specific person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us in our place. He died and was buried and rose again. Does that make sense, guys? So so the gospel is content sensitive. It matters what's in there. And we're in a culture that likes to synchronize lots of beliefs. And in doing so, often the gospel then becomes, from a culture's perspective, polluted or diluted. We're also in a culture that likes to pluralize everything. It's a word that came out there very well. But in other words, well, everything can be true. But if that's the case then the gospel loses its distinctiveness. 
And so we have to be willing to embrace the exclusive nature of this, of this item we call the gospel, which is Christ's life, that it involves a message about a specific particular person, the God-man, who was prophesied and, and brought forth from eternity by God in the fullness of time, a specific particular person who did a specific particular set of things. He gave his life, which was perfect. He died for our sins. He, he was buried and he rose again. Those are particular specific items about a particular specific person that we must embrace. That is the gospel. Anything less than that, or I might add, anything more than that isn't the gospel. And we won't preach it and we won't ask you to believe it. We'll only preach the gospel. We'll ask you to believe the gospel because it's the gospel that saves. Amen? And the gospel is content sensitive. I want to ask you a question. Have you believed the gospel? Now, hopefully, as I've asked you that question this morning, your mind is thinking, so do I believe the truth about who Jesus is and what he did? Because that really is what I'm asking you. I'm not asking you, well, I heard a good story about a guy who came to earth and he gave his life, and so I'll believe that story, whatever that story is. Hmm. that's a little weak there well I believe that there's a book called the Bible and I guess they call that the gospel so yeah I'll just believe that book whatever it says Mm. you see sometimes we can almost neuter the gospel can't we genericize it so much that that it's really not the gospel in other words it's not the life, death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ So let me ask you, have you believed in the gospel? The good news that Jesus Christ has come as the long-awaited fulfillment of everything God promised redemptively. And his life, death, burial, and resurrection alone atone for your sin. That is the best news anyone could ever tell you. Which is why the gospel is news to be heralded, not a list to be distributed. Amen? So have you believed the gospel? Another reason why I love what Paul does in Romans. He can write such deep truths about Jesus and such clear um, facts about this in 1 Corinthians. But in Romans, he simply says that for one to be saved, you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. I, I love the way Paul can can swim in the deepest ocean and yet shop on the lowest shelf, you know. It's like Paul can do both of those. How how does one access such a magnanimous, glorious salvation? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, isn't that awesome? And that's what's waiting, that's what he's talking about here and that's what's kind of we're unpacking, this idea of what we believe, what we preach. It's the gospel. It's content sensitive and it demands that we believe in it. it. It calls for us to respond to it. How do we do that? Well, I think that's the next point I want to make to you. That the gospel is contact sensitive as well. Our response is one that is kind of 
rooted in time and space. Notice what he says here in the beginning of this passage. He says this gospel, they received it, they stood on it, and they're holding fast to it. Those are contact words. Let me say this to you, church. The gospel is a contact sport, all right? I mean, uh, it's not something that kind of hovers around a cloud. And we think, well, I might get infected by the gospel one day. Maybe that will save me. And then suddenly we catch it like, oh, I I didn't know. I, I must have caught a gospel cold here. I mean, that's not what happens. Neither does someone wake up one day and say, you know, I think today I'm a Christian. I don't know how that happened. I'm not sure what occurred, but I think today I'm a Christian. Those are foreign concepts to the Bible. The Bible talks about the gospel as being a a content-sensitive set of truths about a specific particular person that we actually come in contact with. Now watch this. And contemplate, think, deliberate, and then decide. Now, is it always yes the first time? No. (laughs) Yes, no. That makes sense. Is it always that we respond well the first time? No. Often folks resist the gospel, but in time, hallelujah, they come to the gospel. Amen? So, so, So this contact sometimes takes a number of times. But, but there is no gospel conversion. There is no standing what we believe accidentally is what I'm saying. Now, this does not mean that you did the work of saving yourself. It simply means that you did the work of responding to God's gracious offer and gift to you. Okay? This picture is best illustrated for us by what Jesus used when talking to Nicodemus. He used the physical birth as an illustration of spiritual birth. John 3, do you recall that? Some of you do. And it's much like that in spiritual birth. John was saying that, that in physical birth, there's, a, there's a, a moment, a time in which you realize that you've been brought to life. There's a decided moment when you realize, wow, I'm no longer dead, I'm alive, I'm, I, it's, it's, it's time to enjoy life. The same thing is true spiritually. The Spirit brings us to life, quickens us, Paul said in Ephesians 2. But we are aware of that and participating in the result of that. Just like in your physical birth, the moment you were brought forth, I'm sure you let the world know. You cried and probably a number of other things you did in the hospital that day. At some point, you realize, man, I have life. No one today is walking around thinking, I'm not sure if I'm living or not. You're aware that at some point in your past, you were brought to life, and not by any work on your part, by the way, can we add. We have kids in the room, so we'll keep this somewhat PG here, okay? But your birth is not to your credit. Your parents did all the work on that. You were birthed. And then you begin to realize the joy of that in your life. And so you celebrate your birthday every year, don't you? The fact that you know you have been brought to life. I always think it's odd that we celebrate children on birthdays when they didn't do any of the work. We should celebrate parents on birthdays. What do you think about that idea, right? Here's my point, guys. Spiritually speaking, God brings you to life by His sovereign grace. And then in those moments... 
when you see his grace extended to you and offered to you and you respond, you realize, well, God's bringing me to life. Yeah, there's this celebration. There's this participation, awareness of it. Yes, that's a moment that you will, watch this, remember. Now, does that mean you have to know the day and the date and the time? I'm of the opinion that you don't. The Bible never says to us, you'll know the exact day, moment, or time. The Bible does say this, though. You will know that you're born again. Here's how I kind of process that. It may be that you know a general season of life in which you were lost and depraved and away from God. And then God began to draw you to himself. And at a certain point in time, it may be a season or a, or a month, it may be a, an event, you, you, you saw the hand of God drawing you out of darkness and into light. Maybe you don't know the exact day or moment. That's not what I'm after. But it's hard to find someone physically who says, I'm not sure, sure if I was born or not. They know they're born because they're living and breathing, right? They can take you to a point like, man, I was born. Same thing spiritually. You'll, you'll know you're born again. And I tend to think you'll generally know the set of circumstances or the, or the conditions or the, or the environment, the season, the time in general, the place in which here's when God began to bring me from the birthing room of salvation. Now, for some of us, it happens so early that we don't remember a lot of details. And that's not to be criticized or looked at negatively. I thank God for little children with childlike faith who just believe without any problem at all. Sometimes they'll say, well, Todd, as far as I can remember, and I was saved when I was really young. I just heard the gospel and just knew. Yes, I, I, I believe that. I trust God, and they've trusted God ever since for every bit of their life. They're genuinely born again. Amen? We love it when little children express faith in Christ and are saved. There are others, though. Man, God snatched you, at least from your memory, the best you can tell, from the very flames of hell when they were licking at your toes. You were a pagan of the highest order. Your life was full of debauchery, idolatry. You weren't a little kid. You were an adult or a teenager or a single um, in college. And man, you were living it up. And somewhere in the middle of all of that sinning, conviction set in. And just like the little child who said, why wouldn't I trust God? Because it's what they knew they should do. Yours was like, man, why wouldn't I trust God? I'm about to die and go to hell. And in that moment, you remember so vividly vividly where you were, the moment God convicted you and drew you by His grace and showed you the gospel. You could almost recount for us the second. You're like, Todd, I know right where I was. See, there's, there's different ways this is recounted. There's different understandings of how um, our spiritual birth happened. What I'm saying to you is this. Remembering a a day or a date is not as important as knowing that you're saved. And how do you know you're saved? Because you've come in contact with the content of the gospel. So if your memory, let me just kind of tread on thin ice a little bit here. If your memory of your conversion experience is minus the Scripture's content, maybe you should re-examine that. Are you trusting and holding fast to the right, use the word, information? 
Does that make sense, guys? So it's, we have to come in contact with the right content. This is why Paul would say, how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they have a preacher if they're not sent? The point Paul is making is this in Romans 10, that it takes the hearing of the gospel to realize, oh, that's the truth that saves. I receive it. I believe it. I take my stand on it. That's what's got to happen. Let me ask you, has that happened in your life? I'm not looking for a calendar day. You may have one. That's good. But that's not what saves you, a day on a calendar. Who saves you is Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. Have you put your faith in Jesus to save you from your sin? That's the question. So what is the gospel? It is a a particular, specific set of beliefs, truths about a particular, specific person. It is content-sensitive and contact-sensitive. That's what it is. That's what saves us. That's what we hold on to. What does it do? Quickly, I'll just mention these and then we'll need to wrap this up. What does it do? It satisfies God and motivates us. I word it like this. It is satisfaction rich and motivation rich. This is what the gospel does. Look at verse 9. I draw these from the last part of our text where Paul says, I used to be unworthy but not anymore by the grace of God or by Christ or by the gospel. I am now worthy. I am what I am. He's speaking here in a way that contrasts the word unworthy. Paul's saying, I am now worthy. How in the world could a man who persecuted the church suddenly say, I'm worthy? It's all because of the grace of God, which means it's all because of Christ, which means it's all because of the gospel. The gospel is what makes people divinely worthy. Now listen very carefully. We all have human value by the fact of our creation. We're made in the image of God. Every single person breathing is made in God's image. That brings us inherent human worth. But divine worth is only imputed. It's only given by the gospel. When we, by faith, are given the righteousness of Christ. That makes sense? So we're not talking here about physical, earthly, like a, a creative kind of worth. We have that by the nature. The, the fact is that we were made in God's image. But no one has imputed divine worth or value until the gospel takes root. And what do you find in our culture? Everyone trying to get uh, the approval of everyone around them from an earthly standpoint. They want the thumbs up, the pat on the back. But what good does it do a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? You don't have to work for human earthly worth. You've got that by creation. And you can't work for divine worth. That only comes through the gospel. Do you see why it's so necessary to call people to believe by faith in Jesus? Because that's where worth, divine worth comes from. So the gospel brings 
worth, but it also brings us motivation. He says next that it was the gospel that, that caused him to work harder than any of them. Speaking of the other apostles, you know, he considered himself least, and yet, in his estimation of being the least of them, he worked harder than any of them. And yet, he turns right around and in somewhat of a contradictory fashion says, it was not I that worked, but it was the grace of God that was with me. Paul here says, the gospel is my deepest motivation. Christ is really what motivates me to work hard at this ministry. And yet he says, don't let that distract you. I don't want you to worry about who's preaching, whether it's me or the apostles. The question is, we must preach and believe in this set of truth that's so motivating, that's so satisfying. This is the gospel. In one sense, I I word it like this. The gospel makes us worthy. Now watch this, you'll like this. And the gospel makes us worky. In other words, it motivates us to get busy for God. That's what Paul says here. Man, it caused him to work harder, and yet he knew it wasn't his own motivation, his own flesh, his own will. It was God's grace. It was Christ. So what is it that we preach and believe? These bookends that bracket this equation. We believe and preach the gospel. And it is a content-sensitive and contact-sensitive message. And what does it do? It fully satisfies God and fully motivates us. This is what we preach and this is what we believe. And this is what was lived out centuries ago in this very week we know as Holy Week. What you'll remember this week coming up are all the events described in this passage. The non-negotiable, essential events that truly make us Christian. Christ, the gospel, God's grace. It's all going to be highlighted this week. So here's the sum of the equation. Then we'll have you respond together. Here's the sum of the equation. Read with me, would you? The grace of the gospel is the person of Christ. And because he has come, all can be changed. I mean, don't miss that in this text, Paul describes the change going from one who persecuted the church to one who was now in the church. That's a massive change. How did that happen? The forgiveness of God in the life of Paul through the person of Christ, the message of the gospel, this is what's happening here. And Paul's own life transformation is a testimony to the incredible change, uh, changing power of the gospel. But Paul is not the only one in that boat. You and I are witnesses as well to the life-changing power of the gospel, of Christ, of the grace of God. And if not this morning, I would invite you, I urge you, I plead with you to weigh heavily your eternal destiny. Have you believed in the only news that can save your soul? What is that news, Todd? That Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. He's living. That's the news that changes everything. That's the gospel. 
That's Christ. So my question is, have you responded to that? To give you that opportunity, can I ask you to bow your heads with me this morning, please, for a few moments? I'm convinced that a message this important, this necessary, this life-changing, I would be foolish not to give you an opportunity to respond to it. And in all transparency, I realize that the bulk of you are probably Christian. You probably have responded to the gospel. I understand that. And I'm so thankful for that. That really is what makes the church the church. It's a body of people who have, who have embraced and stood upon this truth. So that's, that's exactly what should be here week in and week out. I'm not faulting you for that at all, okay? But are there people who perhaps, just as in the New Testament church, thought they were in, but really weren't, because they didn't believe the right message? Could be. Are there people who in one sense, uh, you know, wander in. They, they think it's uh, happenstance, coincidental, but the truth is God has orchestrated their very arrival in this building to hear the great news that He has come. He has taken care of their sin and by simple belief they can be saved. Yes, there are people like that. Could there be someone here this morning like that? If so, could I just ask you to consider, to reflect, to ponder the message of the gospel and its ramifications for your eternal destiny what would it gain you if if you had the stamp of everyone else you had the whole world's thumbs up because you refused to believe the gospel you were under God's wrath what would that gain you my friend nothing you would deserve God's punishment in the end and you would not be saved from the wrath to come could I urge you and plead with you to consider the truthful historical reliable evidential message of Christ Jesus and his life and the events that occurred in this week of his life centuries ago the events that comprise what we hold on to so dearly, the gospel. Would you consider those events? If God this morning is opening your eyes to see those events, this set of truth about a specific particular person as the only means by which you can be saved, if your eyes are now open to that, like, oh, this is, this is the answer. Would you right now just say, God, save me through Jesus Christ. I believe He was your Son. You sent Him. I believe He did what He said He did and you raised Him from the dead. Lord, I believe and confess with my my mouth Jesus Christ is Lord. Save me. God will keep His word and save you. You can then say you have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. 